lights and blue skies are on their way. Yeah, they're on their way. Hi, everybody. My name is Corey Rabin, and welcome to Crosstalk. This is our podcast about alcohol and drug recovery and living balanced, trying to feel good on a day-to-day basis without the influence of alcohol, drugs, or any other kind of thing to change the way you feel. Last time we spoke, I talked about some music which was inspiring to me, some music that really made a difference to me in, in my life and my sobriety. There's a song by Jason Mraz called Living in the Moment. If you don't know the song, listen to it, listen to the words. It's a really great song, and one of the things that I have uh, on my phone right now, just lyrics to the uh, to the song, it says, I will not waste my days making up all kinds of ways to worry about the things that will not happen to me. I love that, because 90% of the things we worry about never happen, and the other 10% can't do anything about. Then he goes on to say in another portion of the song, I'm letting myself off the hook for things I've done. I let my past go past and now I'm having more fun. I'm letting go of the thoughts that do not make me strong and I believe this way can be the same for everyone. So essentially, trying to live in the moment, trying to understand that what's going on right now is what we need to deal with. Tomorrow's not here yet, yesterday's finished. Try to live in the moment and be where your feet are. And so, welcome to Crosstalk, and we're gonna get cracking now with our guest, Josh, who's gonna inspire everybody who's listening to our podcast. I grew up in Flushing, Queens, and I was I was adopted into a Jewish family. Well, I was born in Colombia, in Medellin. So you know Pablo Escobar and all that uh, all that talk over there. Like if you're if you're born in Colombia, you're probably bound to be a drug addict or an alcoholic. You know that's 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 the culture down there. You know, nonetheless, I was you know adopted into a great family. My mom always says, you know, I never got a bad report from you as a kid. You know, you were never a bully. You're always um, very inclusive to people. You know, it didn't matter who it was. You know, you're including them in uh, sports, you know, and uh, coming over to the house, you know, it doesn't matter what it was. So you were a kind-hearted uh, child? Definitely, definitely. I was a kind-hearted child, you know, and that's that's the strange thing about drugs and alcohol. When I had my first drink and I had my first drug, I was still that kind-hearted person, but slowly when that disease kicked in, I wasn't kind-hearted anymore. You know, it was how could I get over someone? You know, if I get hurt, I get hurt. If they get hurt, they get hurt, you know. Kind of day and night from the child I was, you know, to the drug addict and alcoholic, you know, I became later. How old were you when you first, you had your first drink and um, was it in a social environment or was you were sneaking it in the basement or something like that? Like when I was a kid, my, you know, my parents would give me, uh, you know, wine, you know, for Passover or whatever it was, or, you know, there's a special like bar mitzvah going on, you know, with the family and they'll give me a drink. When I had that first drink, you know, that first, first drink that I, you know, remember the obsession, the phenomenon of craving. I was uh, I was in Central Park, you know, was with a couple of friends, and I remember, you know, it was it was a day like this, you know, a hot day right after school, you know, my I was very optimistic, you know, very looking forward to the summer, you know, and um, that first drink, you know, would hit me. There weren't any consequences, but I remember saying like, I if I have the chance to do this again, I'm definitely going to do it. So kind of like a, they call that, I think, euphoric recall when you think back to how that made you feel. Everything was just great. It was perfect for you. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Alcohol was a solution for for the t- for a time being, you know, until it wasn't. And a lot of it was like, you know, looking back on it, it was uh, the disease created a false narrative. Like, 
I was a part of a lot of things growing up. Like it wasn't like I was uh, I was an outcast or anything. So just my mindset, you know, the disease was talking, you know, saying you're worthless, you know, no one likes you. Just those things going through my mind were were very far from the truth. So so you have your first drink, Central Park, summertime. You're with your friends. It starts uh, making sense to you that this is the right way. This is something that that made you feel good. So you know, obviously, you went beyond the first drink. You want to tell our listeners a little bit about how that went on, what age you were, and give us a little bit of flavor for you know how the, how the cycle started. There really wasn't any you know party going on. I was there were, I wasn't drinking with people. I was drinking by myself at the end. You know, I was getting I was blacking out. But that's uh that you know I've come a long way. But just to just to kind of like fill in the blanks a little bit, you know. First started, you know, with alcohol. Like alcohol was that magic, like I was talking about. And slowly, you know, you get introduced to uh, to weed, you know. And uh, smoking weed, it did the same thing for me. It got me out of my head. Got me out of my own skin. And uh, smoking every day, smoking every day, drinking every day, you know. And um, 15, 16 years old, there weren't there weren't any consequences really. Like I was a student. I was an athlete. I was on the wrestling team in my high school. I was on the baseball team in my high school. I had good grades. My teachers liked me. You know, so um, my mindset in high school at the beginning was like, you know, if I can do this, you know, drink and drug and everything is okay on the surface, you know, we're fine. Like, there's, there's no issue. Yeah. Drinking and drug and everything was fine. You know, going to parties, hanging out with friends. But, you know, they talk about the line in the sand. Um, and I don't, I don't really remember where the line of the sand happened. I can't tell you, but one day the flip, the, the script just flipped. You know. In other words, you crossed the line from it being something that was enjoyable and sociable to being something that no longer was enjoyable, no longer was something that took over. Is that what you mean? Exactly. It was a full-time job. Full-time job. How old are you in the story? Are you 18 at this point? Yeah, so 17, 18. Um, you know, I'm kind of doing whatever I can do to get drugs and alcohol. You know, I'm going, um, you know, breaking into friends' houses when they're not home to try to find money, to try to find booze, to try to find, you know, prescription pills, whatever whatever it may be. That's where I was. Like, yeah, I, I was that friend who would, um, you know, help you, help you find your wallet, although I have it in my back pocket. It was really... Really, just to attain drugs and alcohol. That that was my goal at the end of the day. So you certainly described what it is to cross the line. Yeah, definitely, definitely. From that kid, at six, fifteen, sixteen, you know, drinking in Central Park, having a good time, to uh, breaking into houses and you know, taking whatever I can, blacking out, being verbally and physically, you know, sometimes abusive to my family, you know. So you're in a in a position now in this in your your story where you're, you're doing all different kinds of drugs. You're doing benzos, you're doing pain medication, you're smoking weed, you're doing drink, anything you can get your hands on. Exactly. And uh, you're doing things that are against your nature, against your moral code, just to be able to get high. What was, was there an event, a specific event that occurred that created a situation where you decided that, or somebody decided for you with an intervention that you were going to rehab to try to change things? So, yeah, no, towards the end, you know, they have that, uh, they have a slogan, you know, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And that's, uh, that's how I felt. 18-year-old kid really just left with a bottle. Like, sports, everything was gone. They were not going to let me graduate if I continued doing, you know, the things I was doing. And, um, my family said, Josh, either we're going to change the locks on you, 
I'm gonna kick you out because you're 18. We can. You're an adult. You could take care of yourself, or you can go to rehab. And um, you know, at that point in time, like, I was I was miserable. Every time I would drink, I would somehow end up crying. Like I was a big cry when I would drink. And you know, I remember thinking the reason I was crying is because I, you know, to thine own self be true. They talk about. I knew I was a, a shitty person. I knew the things I was doing was not the kid I was. The kid I was trying to grow up to be. You know, when I accepted going to treatment, I'm like, you know what, maybe there's a better way. Maybe there's a better way to live. There wasn't a lot that I could say that was good about that inpatient, you know, although, you know, it showed me that, um, you know, people could get sober. It showed me that I could have a, you know, a fellowship of people my age, you know, fighting this disease together. There was something I never, I never realized. Like, I didn't realize people struggled the same way I did. I thought I was a phenomenon. Like, I thought it was only me against the world. I thought it was me against this disease. But seeing the people in treatment, you know, that I was with, you know, it's really a brotherhood. So with younger people? Yeah, yeah. So it was 18, uh, you know, minus. 18 was the max age. You were 18, so... You were one of the older people, but you, you were able to connect with people in a way that you saw you weren't alone. Yeah, exactly, exactly. When I was there, I, I you know, I wanted to leave at points. When I left, I wanted to go back. Right. You know, How long were you there for? I was there for 48 days. Then my, my insurance unfortunately <clears throat> cut. And, you know, I came right back to Queens during COVID, March 20th. Well, March 20th, I got out of uh, rehab. 2020. Yeah, 2020. So right at the beginning of COVID, you get out of rehab, you're back home in Queens. Mm -hmm. Did you stay sober at that point? No, no. I ended up picking up that that <clears throat> night. And I remember thinking, like, I know this is not good for me. I know that there is a better way of living because I've seen people live a sober way. You know, it could be the staff there. It could be the people. It could be people I would see at the AA meetings. Like, there is a better way to live. But I don't know. Like, I had one foot in the door, one foot out the door. I wasn't totally committed at that point. I, I wanted, to, you know, I wanted to so badly feel that drugs and alcohol, there, you know, there was still some good left. And, uh, you know, surprise, surprise, there wasn't, you know, there's no good. You know, I blacked out that night again, crying, you know, nothing, no, there weren't any severe consequences, but like emotionally, like I felt like that was another bottom. Did, it, did your experience at rehab for 48 days, coming home, then immediately picking up, yeah. Um, did you find picking up, did any of the things that it originally did in terms of making you feel good, or was it that ruined your, the, the rehab experience kind of ruined it for you? Ruined it, ruined it. Uh -huh. There's a saying, uh, <clears throat> there's this old timer in, in the AA, and he's like, AA pissed in my drink. And it's true. Like, I took that drink, and it was never, it's not the same thing. Like, I can't unlearn the things I learned. And I know this is not the right way to do it. You know, I know. Like to thine own self be true, like I said earlier, I know I'm not supposed to be doing this. There's an expression, once you're a pickle, you can't be a cucumber anymore. Exactly, you exactly. Know, it is what it is. So at that point, so you pick up the first day. Um, what happened after that, uh, between then and where we are today? Um, did you immediately get back to rehab or did you start going to 12-step meetings or how did, how did you get your uh, act together? I came clean to my, to my mom. I told my mom, you know, I drank, you know, I want to I wanna go back to treatment, like, is it possible? Because I know I, if I stay here in Queens, it's just not going to be good. It's not going to be good for me mentally. They were very supportive. They, they got on the phone with a couple sober houses. When you say sober house, just for listeners who aren't familiar with it, it's a place that you go to where there's some kind of a controlled environment, you're not living at home, 
there's some meetings and some people that are in there that help you along the, the road to try to help you maintain your sobriety with a, a collective group of other people who are living there and who are all trying to do the same thing, which is not pick up, not use, stay sober, right? Exactly, exactly. But that wasn't a good place to go to? No, unfortunately it wasn't. There was um, there was a lot of people, you know, you know, drinking and drugging in there. Everyone was, you know, pr pretty much relapsing like every every day. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, and they would make you ride the train. Like, if you relapse, like, oh, we're not gonna send you back to treatment. We're not gonna get you the help you need. We're gonna say, oh, go ride the train for a night and come back. You know, just you know, the guy who owned the house, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a great fit. You know, I didn't really, you know, connect with the guy. How long did you stay there? I only stayed there for like a, probably a week. So, um, you know, at that point, you know, I was I was kind of I was kind of ready. I was, you know, I saw what sobriety, like I said, I saw what sobriety could do for people in my previous treatment center. So you know what? Let me let me give it a second chance. Like you know, by the grace of God, I, I have a second chance. Let me let me do it. And um, there's this guy Mario. Everyone knows Mario in the recovery community. He's a solid guy. And uh, he's a great friend, you know, to this day. And he actually picked me up, you know, from this sober house. I didn't know him at all. And, you know, he, he on that ride, you know, really calmed me down. Like, I was still very hesitant. Like, I was, you know, very mocus. I didn't know really what I wanted. But he was saying, you know, trust the process. Like, you know, you, you, Karen's a great place. Like, just do what they ask, you know, ask of you, and, you know, all is going to be good. And he, he said he was sober for uh, probably five years at that point. He was saying he's, he's living a great life, talking about the concerts he goes to and the ball games and all this. You so know? he inspired you. He, he definitely did. By the way, I want you to know, you used a word that I heard 40 years ago that no one uses anymore. For you listeners who don't know what mocus is, mocus is a word to describe the fact that your head is not on your shoulders at all and you have no idea which end is up. And getting changing, getting calm, getting sober is about trying not to be mocus anymore. But I don't think it's a real word, but we understand what it is. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you went to Karen, Mario helped you kind of get you inspired. Mm -hmm. And you, you were there for how, how long? So I was there for 28 days. I was trying to remain optimistic through this whole through this whole thing, um, but luckily, you know, Karen was a great place. You know, we uh, we used to do we used to do a twelve step at the end of the at the end of the night, and it was kind of like well, ten step actually, ten step to review our day, you know, and how we were feeling. And um, they always had this question like, "Did you feel like picking up today?" And um, you know, with the first fifteen days, I was like, "Yes, yes," you know, I felt like picking up. You know, I'm I'm over here and at, you know in the farm like I, I kind of want to you know if I if I'm if I'm somewhere I want to be elsewhere if I'm there I want to be you know somewhere else so it was like you know I'm like Karen I want to be back in Queens although I know Queens is not the place for me right now <clears throat> you know and um, slowly but surely like after 15 days you know I didn't have the craving to pick up like it slowly started to leave so it was like you know I don't know 17 days I feel like picking up no you know, and I remember thinking about it, and I'm like, wow, like. So you're there for 28 days. This time you come out um, different, different, Josh. Yeah, definitely, definitely different. You know, um, but obviously there was a lot of things I had to work on. You know, the trust from my parents was completely, pretty much obliterated. You know, at that point in time, like, and I remember hearing, uh, you know, trust is gained in drops and lost in buckets. 
And I remember that, and I was like, that connects. Like, that, that is a great saying. And, you know, it was gained in drops, pretty much. You know, I, I, left, uh, I left care and treatment centers after 28 days. I went to a release recovery in Yorktown Heights in Westchester. And, um, you know, from that first, you know, from that first day walking in, you know, you know, I didn't feel, I didn't feel instantly connected, you know. Obviously, it was going to take me some time to adjust, but, uh, you That's know. a sober living. Yeah, it's a sober living, but it was completely different than the one I was at beforehand. And, um, you know, there was, I received, like, the, like I said, the brotherhood, I received love from the brotherhood, you know, from the people I was, you know, there with. You know, they, sh- they kind of showed me the ropes on, you know, what to do, like what the house schedule was like, you know, when the meetings are, you know, if you need something, who to ask. More structure there. Yeah. You had the feeling that they were more interested in you being sober than the check at the end of the week. Exactly. Exactly. So right now, you're no longer in sober living. What the hell are you doing? So right now, uh, I'm actually working for the sober living I was at, Release Recovery. I do the overnights, so I can't What does that me. mean? It's uh, so it's a shift from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. basically, and just making sure everything's running smoothly at night. You know, cleaning up after you know certain clients they don't clean up after themselves, but you know we've all been there. But um, you get to talk to the people who are in sober living, who are uh, you know patients at the at the sober living. Do you help them? Do you try to give them what you've gotten? I definitely do. Yeah, there's uh, you know, at certain points it's hard. There are, there are like certain people at the sober living like and, and I wish the best for them but you, sometimes you can't talk an alcoholic into being sober like there are people who don't want to be sober at that moment and uh, I'm just I wish I could you know put my hand on their shoulder and something will transform in their mind but they talk about no human power could relieve our alcoholism you know I can't relieve it you know it has to be you know a higher power of their understanding they have probably they have to hit a bottom you know they have to hit a bottom how old are you now? I'm 21. 21. And how's your relationship with mom and dad? It's great. The the trust is back. You know, it took it took some time, but the trust is there. I go back um, pretty much every weekend for uh, for Shabbat. You know, and that's uh, you know that's been very enjoyable. Usually when I when I, when I was drinking and drugging, you know, Shabbat would be a, you know a fighting match pretty much. You know, I'd be blacked out like nothing. Nothing good was happening. Nothing good was happening. But now, you know, I'm there. I can talk to my father, talk to my mom, you know, talk to my sister. That's something I couldn't do when I was, you know, out there drinking and drugging. Well, I, for, for anybody who's uh, who knows you, the people that I know who know you, all talk about you as if you were really a power example to both the young people and the older people. You inspire me. And I was 27 when I got sober. And it's not easy to do what you do at your age. So many people around you, the people that are, I mean, you're not really in the environment where you're, you know, sitting at the schoolyard or, you know, at the park looking for some trouble. But, you know, 21 year olds, not the easiest thing to do what you're doing. And uh, for for one, I I think you're a really amazing human being. And when I hear you speak to people, um, everybody is looking at you like you're an inspiration. And, And I am so grateful that you came here to talk to us today. And, uh, you know, I I really just thank you so much for for being here. Anybody who's listening to our podcast, if you uh, send us a message through Instagram, uh, any of the other uh, platforms that we're on, um, Facebook, etc., just please uh, reach out and we'll make sure that you get some help. And 
uh, put you in touch with the right people. So, uh, Josh, thanks so much for being here today. Of course. Thank you, Corey, for having me. I'm really grateful for your, your being here. Always a pleasure to see you. Hi again, everybody. Usually, as we close our podcast at Crosstalk, um, try to talk a little bit about something that I've read, something that was inspiring. And I want to talk to you about a book that somebody gave me when I was in a detox. It's called The Four Agreements. Uh, it's by Don Miguel Ruiz. It's a thousand-year-old Toltec legacy. The Four Agreements are be impeccable with your word, don't take things too personally, don't make assumptions, and always do your best. Agreements meaning kind of contracts you make with yourself, things that you're going to do on an ongoing basis, day to day, to make your life better. And the book is a wonderful book. If you have time to read it, please do so. But I want to read a little piece about the portion that talks about not taking things too personally, because it's inspiring to me. It's something that I think everybody, whether you're in recovery or not, uh, can find useful. Nothing other people do is because of you. It's because of themselves. All people live in their own dream, in their own mind. They're in a completely different world from the one we live in. When we take something personally, we make the assumption that they know what it is that's going on in our world, and we try to impose our world on their world. Even when a situation is so personal, even when others insult you directly, it has nothing to do with you. What they say, what they do, and the opinions they give are according to the agreements they have in their own minds. Their point of view comes from all the programming they received during the time they grew up. They call it during their domestication. When we really see other people as they are without taking it personally, we can never be hurt by what they say or what they do. Even if others lie to you, it's okay. They're lying to you because they're afraid. They're afraid you'll discover that they are not perfect. Here's a really important piece. If someone is not treating you with love and respect, it's a gift if they walk away from you. If that person doesn't walk away, you'll surely endure many years of suffering with him or with her. Walking away may hurt for a while, but your heart will eventually heal. Then you can choose what you really want. You'll find that you don't need to trust others as much as you need to trust yourself to make the right choices. There's a huge amount of freedom that comes to you when you take nothing personally. So at the end of the day, what we're saying here is that most other people are busy looking at themselves in the mirror. They're not looking at us. And the, the main thing that you want to take away with is that your judgment about yourself, your intuition, trusting your own thoughts and your own feelings to make good choices for yourself is really the answer. Not thinking anybody else has a better idea than you do about what's good for you. So I hope that helps you. It has helped me greatly and I love the four agreements. Please read it if you, you don't know about the book. It helps anybody. And I'm so grateful for you uh, being here today with us and I'm grateful to Josh. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.